Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we have a very special roundtable for you. We'll be focusing on the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, specifically the women in SNCC. SNCC grew out of a conference where student activists could share experiences and coordinate activities that was organized with the help of civil rights veteran Ella Baker. The conference was held at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina in April of 1960. SNCC went on to become a major force in the civil rights movement sit-ins, to freedom schools, to organizing the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that confronted the 1964 Democratic National Convention. SNCC members were referred to as shock troops of the revolution. SNCC organizers were often under threat. They were firebombed, they were arrested, beaten, and some murdered. They focused on local decision-making and is reported to have made decisions by consensus. Key SNCC figures included John Lewis, who was a chairman of SNCC. Also, the first chairman was Marion Berry. Other key figures included James Foreman, Diane Nash, James Bevel, Bob Moses, Fannie Lou Hamer. As SNCC shifted from nonviolent resistance and a multiracial organization to Black power, and those prominent shifted to voices such as Kwame Ture, uh, formerly Stokely R. Carmichael, and H. Rat Brown. Now, there is no doubt that SNCC played a central role in the March on Washington in winning both the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Act and more, and in so doing, played a leading role in the history and fabric of the United States which in turn influenced movements for justice around the world. Now, while those in the most visible leadership of SNCC were men, like the rest of the civil rights movement, women in SNCC played a central role. Indeed, SNCC could not have succeeded without SNCC women. It is argued that SNCC opened doors to the feminist movement by seeking to change society with alternate institutions that identified oppression in the form of racism and sexism as core problems. Uh, Let us go now to a clip from the 50th anniversary of SNCC that was also held at Shaw University almost a decade ago. And we're going to hear one of our guests, Martha Prescott Noonan, singing the battle song of SNCC. This book comes from a song that... I, I can't sing, but I'm going to start it. Okay, we are soldiers. I want you to keep standing in the army. We
All righty. And that was uh, Martha actually leading a song at the SNCC 50th anniversary conference. She is one of our guests today. And we have three women who are active in SNCC joining us for a roundtable discussion today. Zahara Simmons, Martha Prescott Noonan, and Helen Jacobson. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. German authorities say a gunman stormed a service at his former Jehovah's Witness congregation in Hamburg, killing six people before taking his own life after police arrived. They gave no motive for Thursday night's attack in Germany's second largest city, but acknowledged they'd received an anonymous tip, which claimed the man showed anger towards religious groups and might be psychologically unfit to own a gun. Eight people were wounded, including a woman who lost her child. Chancellor Olaf Scholz says the death toll could rise. In the U.S., President Joe Biden unveiled his 2024 budget proposal yesterday with plans to slash the federal deficit and boost social programs and military spending. Christopher Martinez has more. Show me your budget. I will tell you what you value. Well, folks, let me tell you what I value with the budget I'm releasing today. I value everyone having an even shot. President Joe Biden's spending plan totals $6.8 trillion. He says it would protect and expand vital services, boost military spending, and cut the federal deficit by $3 trillion over the next 10 years. On the other side of the ledger, it would hike taxes on the rich, in particular corporations and billionaires. Biden says the number of billionaires has gone up from 650 when he was elected to now more than 1,000. Know what the average tax they pay, federal tax? 3%. No billionaire should be paying a lower tax than somebody working as a schoolteacher or a firefighter or any of you in this room. Biden's budget would restore the child tax credit that was part of the American Rescue Plan but later expired. Given spending proposals like that, plus the taxes on the rich, Biden's budget is not likely to sail through the Republican-majority House of Representatives. I'm Christopher Martinez. The CEO of Norfolk Southern, the nation's largest railroad company, apologized at a Senate committee hearing for last month's fiery toxic train derailment where millions of gallons of toxic chemicals were dispersed. But he refused to endorse a bipartisan bill that would toughen safety rules, Eileen Alfandari reports. A bipartisan bill by Ohio's two senators, Democrat Sherrod Brown and Republican J.D. Vance, would require railroads to create disaster plans and tell emergency response commissions what hazardous materials are going through their states. The bill also would require train crews to continue to have two people instead of just one, as the industry has been pushing. Brown noted the rail industry has successfully fought tougher safety rules for years. 
lobbyists for the rail companies have spent years fighting every effort to strengthen rules to make our trains and our rail lines safer. Now Ohioans are paying the price. The railroad and other companies successfully killed a proposal that would have required rail cars carrying hazardous flammable materials to be equipped with electronic braking systems, which could stop trains more quickly than the current braking system. California Senator Alex Padilla pointed to another safety concern. He said the amount of time a carman is given to inspect a rail car to be sure it's fit to go back onto the rails has been reduced by two thirds. 60 seconds. Do you know how long it takes to walk the perimeter? Does that leave enough time for an actual thorough inspection? Newly elected Trump-backed Ohio Republican Senator J.D. Vance called out members of his own Republican Party who oppose the bipartisan safety legislation he has co-authored. Do we do the bidding of a massive industry that is in bed with big government, or do we do the bidding of the people who elected us to the Senate and to the Congress in the first place? I'm Eileen Alfandari. Iran and Saudi Arabia have agreed to reestablish diplomatic relations and reopen embassies after years of tensions. The two countries released a joint statement about the deal today with China, which apparently brokered the agreement. Tensions have been high between Iran and Saudi Arabia. The kingdom broke off ties with Iran in 2016 after protesters invaded Saudi diplomatic posts there. Saudi Arabia had executed a prominent Shia cleric days earlier, triggering the protests. Former President Donald Trump has been invited to testify next week before a New York grand jury that has been investigating hush money payments made on his behalf during his 2016 presidential campaign to a porn star he allegedly had an affair with. That's according to one of his lawyers. Such an invitation often indicates a decision on indictments is near. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office declined to comment. Any indictment would mark the first time any former U.S. president has been charged with a crime. Trump attorney says a case would have no legal basis. It comes amidst his 2024 Republican presidential bid. A letter claiming to be from the Mexican drug cartel blamed for abducting four Americans and killing two of them condemned the violence and says the gang turned its own members who were responsible over to authorities. The letter from the Scorpions factions of the Gulf cartel apologized to the residents of Matamoros, where the Americans were kidnapped, the Mexican woman who died in the cartel shootout, and the four Americans and their families. Drug cartels have been known to issue communication case to in to intimidate rivals and authorities, but also at times like these to do public relations work to try to smooth over situations that could affect their business. Earlier this week, South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham introduced legislation that would allow the U.S. military to respond to drug cartels at the border. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we have a very special roundtable today as we continue our Women's History Month special. We are going to be focusing on women in SNCC. And we have three women, icons really, who were all active in SNCC or with friends of SNCC. 
Now, the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, known as SNCC, was founded in 1960 in the wake of student-led sit-ins at segregated lunch counters across the South. It became a major channel of student participation in the civil rights movement. In the wake of the Greensboro sit-in at a lunch counter closed to Black people, Ella Baker, then director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, helped set up the first meeting and what became SNCC, and that uh, was held at Shaw University. She was concerned that SLC, led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, needed to be more in touch with younger Black people um, who wanted uh, to be part of the movement to make faster progress. Ella Baker encouraged those who formed SNCC to look beyond integration to broader social change and to view Dr. King's principle of nonviolence uh, more as a political tactic. SNCC played a large part in the freedom rides aimed at desegregating buses and in the marches organized by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, SNCC also created freedom schools and also played a key role in registering Black voters throughout the South. What I'd like to do now before welcoming our roundtable panelists is to go to a clip from the 50th anniversary of uh, SNCC uh, conference, which was also held at Shaw University. And we want to thank the SNCC Legacy uh, Project uh, for this. I did have, I was at the conference and did have permission to record it. And here is uh, one of our guests, Martha Prescott Noonan, speaking at that conference. I want to talk about women in the context of some of the stories from this book. Um, I'm going to start out with a little of my concerns. I'm a little distressed uh, to be on a panel that's mostly northern women here to talk about what women did in the southern black freedom movement. And I'm concerned, as I was, I have this from SNCC about the use of the word leader and leadership. You know, we have traditions in the black community, the lifting as we climb, the talented tenth, and the models of using leadership and organizing, of course, from the top down and the kind of posits uh, a group of organizers who are separate and apart from the community and turn around and give back. This latest one really kind of wrinkles me a little bit. But anyway, so instead of uh, talking about women as leaders, I, I want to suggest that there are ways, big and small, that women played significant roles in determining the course pace and nature of the civil rights movement and uh, cite a few examples um, that are, all these are in the book which I know you're just going to be dying to read. Uh, Spelman student uh, Zahara Simmons along with a group of other female Spelman students figured out a tactic how to widen the effect of sit-ins there. Realizing that the restaurants immediately closed as soon as they're entering instead of going and staying at one restaurant until they got arrested they went from restaurant to restaurant, effectively closing down many restaurants on the same day. Uh, on this panel, there are women who were key partners in imagining and creating a number of new SNCC projects like the Free Southern Theater, the Poor People's Corporation, literacy, photography, publishing, radio projects. Uh, and in this light, also, I think of Diane Nash, who having the sense of the direction of history, of the importance and potential of, move of the movement, 
was the first of the sit-in activists to drop out of school and work full-time for the movement. Then, when Corps disbanded their Freedom Rides in the spring of 1961, fearing that someone would be killed, she insisted that stopping the rides would give out the self-defeating message that the movement could be stopped by white mob violence and that valuable movement momentum would be lost if the rides did not continue and she organized uh, fixed students to continue the rides. SNCC women contributed to the ideological and philosophical growth of the movement, Mary King, <laughs> Mary King and Casey Hayden, of course, put the discussion of women's liberation on the national table. Also, within SNCC, women were key in the development of concepts of black liberation, as well as an anti-war and international third world perspective, some leaning more towards the concerns of people of color, other towards the concerns of African people scattered throughout the diaspora, and yet others encompassing both perspectives. All righty, and that was the voice of, of one of our guests. And in fact, why don't we start first with welcoming her, Martha Prescott Noonan, a community campaigner, activist, homemaker, mother, teacher of history, including of the civil rights movement. Uh, Martha grew up in Rhode Island. She attended the University of Michigan. She was a fundraiser and a field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She worked directly with Bob Moses. She is one of six editors of a book about SNCC women's experiences in the movement entitled Hands on the Freedom Plow. Martha Prescott Noonan, welcome back. It's been way too long. Thank you. Okay, yes. And people who recognize Prescott, people mix us up. Margaret Prescott and Martha Prescott. Yes, there is a relation. Okay. Uh, I'd also like to welcome uh, Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons. Uh, Gwendolyn was also a member of SNCC. And uh, Gwendolyn uh, Zahara has been on our show a number of times also. She's also Professor Emerita of African-American and Islamic Studies at the University of Florida. Zahara, welcome back. Thank you very much. Okay. And I would also like to welcome, for the first time on our airwaves, uh, Helen Jacobson. Helen uh, was with Friends of SNCC. She also organized in the North with the Northern Student Movement, with the Northern Community Action Project. She was the head of Friends of SNCC in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She organized in Chicago. She went to jail several times. We hope to hear some of those stories. Helen, welcome. Thank you. All righty. So, let us just start to give give our audience um, a sense of when you got involved, what got you involved in SNCC and, uh, or with Friends of SNCC? Um, Zahara, why don't we start with you? Well, thank you. I was a um, student at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, beginning in the fall of 1962. And Atlanta was one of the hotspots uh, for student uh, movement organizing, uh, sit-ins and all were going ongoing when I arrived. Now, often people are shocked to hear that Spelman College, you know, a black college for women, uh, very esteemed, told us that we better not get involved 
in the civil rights movement or we would lose our uh, scholarships and could even be uh, expelled. Well, given that I was poor and the first person in my family to go to college and I was on a full scholarship, I was terrified of losing it. But there were so many uh, factors uh, that were working on getting me involved uh, from the classroom, Stoughton Lynn and Howard Zinn, uh, from the church that I had joined, not knowing that uh, the pastor who was Ralph David Abernathy was a movement activist in the uh, Montgomery bus boycott. And then the SNCC, uh, uh, while, you know, activists were constantly recruiting. So they wore me down. And even though I had promised my family that I was not going to get involved, I did little by little uh, begin going to the SNCC office, which was only three blocks away from the campus, uh, joining the student group uh, there called the Committee on Appeals for Human Rights uh, that had been started by a number of people, including Julian Bond, who was a student at Morehouse. So, uh, you know, it was the times uh, and my own anger and disgust with the apartheid system we were living under. Uh, so I got involved little by little. And then uh, in my sophomore year was elected to represent the Committee on Appeals to the SNCC co Coordinating Committee and learned about the plans being made for the 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer. And I knew that I had to be a part of that. And so I did go to Mississippi and dropped out of school to work full-time with SNCC. Wow. All righty. We'll talk a bit more about Mississippi uh, Freedom Summer. Uh, now, Martha, thank you, Zahara. Martha, going to you, um, from what I hear, your parents were none too happy when you decided to go south. Martha, what inspired you and at what point did you become involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee? Well, my first desire to go south happened after I saw a, a white paper on the uh, Nashville student movement, and I wanted to go to Fisk. Uh, but my mother, who was a U of M alumna, uh, had already moved to Michigan two years ahead of time so that I could go to school uh, at the University of Michigan as an in-state student, what, what she could afford. Um, so I went to University of Michigan. I thought I would be, you know... Uh, separate from everything. And in the fall semester, um, and I joined a religious group, you know, to kind of keep my parents happy. And that group sponsored uh, some students from the McCone movement, uh, Curtis Hayes in particular. Uh, and that was an eye opener for me when they taught, when he talked about what they were doing in McComb and what they felt they could do uh, across Mississippi. And then the following semester, Tom Hayden came back to campus, um, having just been arrested on a freedom ride uh, in Albany, Georgia. And that was it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, thank you for that. And, and that Curtis, 
Um, that, you know, is someone, I think I first met Curtis uh, after Katrina and we were doing organizing uh, together with evacuees and some other folks um, in uh, New Orleans. And, and he was quite shocked uh, to learn a bit about our connection, uh, Martha. Uh, and of course, Tom Hayden was a regular on our weekly roundtable of the, this hour, this very same hour on Fridays, up until the time that he became uh, too ill uh, to participate, the late uh, Tom Hayden. But um, Helen, what about you? What got you involved? Here you are, a, a white Jewish girl uh, from the North, right? <laughs> And what what are you doing getting mixed up with this lot? How how did you get involved? Well, I <laughs> guess I should uh, put it all on Martha. Uh, <laughs> I, I came to the University of Michigan at 17 from Brazil, where I'd lived for six years due to my parents' work in immigration. And I had read about the civil rights movement and was very interested. But she got me involved and we had a very active friends of SNCC chapter and um sophomore the beginning of sophomore year uh she we organized these food drives for Mississippi all over campus and also uh handed out leaflets telling everyone what was going on because a big part of it was that, that people in the North and, or the Midwest didn't always hear everything that was happening with SNCC and with other people in the South. But um, I learned very much about the whole movement and everything from Martha, who is still uh, a hero to me today. Right. Okay. So, um, Martha, you 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 got her involved in it. Um, we we're going to need to go to to station break. Um, but Zohara, uh, did you double book? Are you able to stay with us a little longer, or do you have to dash? Yes. Yes. I was on the other call, and then I told them I had to get off and join you guys. So I'm here for the duration. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Okay, well, that's, a, that's a big relief. In, in that case, we are going to take a, a short station break now, and then we return. We're going to continue with the women of SNCC, Zahara Simmons, Martha Prescott-Noonan, Helen Jacobson with Friends of SNCC. You won't want to miss this. It's historic. It's Women's History Month. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. All righty, and here we come by Tiana 
Asili, and um, it is Women's History Month, a special Women's History Month roundtable. This is Sojourner Truth, your host, Margaret Prescott. We want to welcome our listeners and also all of the Pacifica flagship stations and affiliates that are listening to us throughout today, really, around the country. And we are doing a special roundtable today with uh, three women who were involved in the civil rights movement, specifically connected with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. And our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at So True Radio, we're also heard nationwide and uh, internationally on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in that great state, of Michigan. And internationally, I would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the island nation of St. Vincent, St. Vincent in in the Caribbean. What I'd like to do now is to uh, first, before returning to our panelists, to a clip also from the 50th anniversary of SNCC that uh, took place um, a little more, more than a decade ago at Shaw University. And this is the voice of Marianne King. If I didn't get that right, I'm sure some of the women on the show will correct me. Let us go to that clip now. Hello. I'm Marianne King, and I worked for four years for SNCC. It was the most important thing I've ever done in my life. Everything else I've ever done dwarfed by the experience of SNCC. And um, I was particularly pleased and privileged to work with an extraordinary person named Julian Bond. Um, Jim Foreman, when he first interviewed me, said, as he would say to most people, well, what can you do? Well, I had been an English major. And when he found that out, he said, well, I think we need you in communications. And he showed me where the office was and sent me over to talk to Julian. So I had the privilege of learning from really one of the greats in so many ways. Uh, And one of the ways that Julian was, I think intuitively brilliant, is that his own tendencies toward understatement were exactly what was needed in dealing with the press. If we were going to try to break the blackout on atrocities against black people, killings of black people, oppression of black people, the worst thing you could do would be to exaggerate. Julian's instinct was always to downplay the numbers and be very, very cautious. So I learned to be very cautious in anything that I said when calling from Dottie Zellner's hot list. I took over from Dottie Zellner She gave me her uh, clipboard with all the telephone numbers of the most trustworthy reporters. And whenever I would call them, we made sure that we had the numbers right or that we had talked with someone if we were giving a quotation. Uh, So I started uh, actually in Danville, Virginia with Avon Rollins and then went to work with Julian in Atlanta and then was sent over to Mississippi to help set up the communication shop there 
prior to the summer of 1964. And Francis Mitchell came in from Los Angeles to help with that. I had to pick up writing a press release along the way. I learned that in Danville, the same way that Maria learned photography. I was just taught to write a press release. It's one of the things about SNCC. You didn't stand on ceremony. You just went ahead and learned how to do it, and you did it. You didn't wait for proper prepping. In fact, I would, everything that I have to say is actually a tribute to SNCC. All righty. So, um, wow, that was quite a statement there. And I think that was Mary Ann King indeed. And Helen, we're going to go to you right now because you were telling me uh, just some amazing stories. I know all three of you have amazing stories, uh, but you were talking about how in 1965, uh, SNCC did a call uh, for people to go to uh, Montgomery. Tell mm -hmm. us about that. Tell us about your, your experience uh, there. And you were involved in a hunger strike also. Helen. Yes. We, um, SNCC did call out for people, especially young people from all over the North, to come down and focus on Montgomery and bring national attention to what was going on there in Montgomery and it, where uh, people were not allowed to register to vote. And we, a group of us went down from Friends of SNCC. I think I was the only uh, girl in the car. And I actually have a picture here. I don't know if you will be able to see it. Um, we, can, we can post it. We can post okay. it uh, after the show. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Carry on. It, so there were many... Uh, people who converged in Montgomery, and there were many uh, white men on horseback who came at Pete, everyone with billy clubs and things. And uh, what I remember most before some of us were arrested is that uh, there were people from Robert Kennedy's Department of Justice taking notes as people got their heads cracked open or whatever, but did nothing. Nobody did anything to stop what was going on. Once uh, we marched and, uh, and were arrested, uh, the women were taken to the women's prison in Montgomery. There weren't that many women. There were many more young men arrested and um, Anyway, in our jail, we all decided to go on a hunger strike, as did the men, the young men. Um, I um, Martha actually visited me there, <laughs> and, which I was surprised they allowed her to do. And uh, we, I was released released at night. I was told to leave the jail at night, and Snick had told everybody never leave jail at night. Uh, because, you know, many bad things can happen. And I, I went outside and there was a car with my friends and I no sooner hopped into the car than from everywhere came white men with uh, rakes and clubs and guns and started beating on the car and calling us, um, I don't know, dirty Northern communists or whatever. And I was just praying that this old car would start. It did. Uh, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So, uh, 
So you, you were able to get away. You were able to get away uh, safely. Um, yes. We'll come back to you, Helen, for sure. more of those stories. But sure. uh, Martha, was what Helen describing, was this during the boycott or at what point was this? Did, were you also in Montgomery, Martha Prescott Noonan? Um, at that time, I was actually working in uh, Selma, but mm -hmm. the Tuskegee students were demonstrating in Montgomery. And so the students uh, from University of Michigan came down to support uh, those demonstrations. And I went to see them to say hello. <laughs> so in this case, Helen is my hero, um, because at that time, um, a, a group of us in Selma, we had decided, you know, we weren't demonstrating anymore. We were just going to do a community organization. So uh, I went and said hello to everyone until it was clear uh, that the police were getting ready to attack. And um, I think I did tell Helen that if, if anything happened to just uh, look for a, a dirt road off of downtown so she could go into the black community and uh, get taken in there. And I think that's what happened. That's what we did. That's what she did. Just, just amazing. I mean, it's hard now to just imagine the level of danger and terror. Zahara uh, Simmons, uh, back to you, because we, we also want to hear um, a few of your stories, uh, Zahara. So where were you uh, during this, this period of time, Zahara? Oh, my God, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, I think that, you know, telling the stories of Mississippi, uh, which I often do, uh, you know, when we went to Mississippi for the 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer Project, uh, I was assigned to Laurel, Mississippi on the eastern side of the state and was initially planning to be the Freedom School Director. That's what I had trained for. Uh, and the person uh, was just the three of us sent there initially, all black, because as we were told, it was too dangerous to send any whites into Laurel. Uh, and I almost fainted because one of the reasons that I sort of convinced myself I might not die down there uh, was because it was so many white volunteers and at that time, I had, you know, I was naive to think, well, they're not going to kill white people. I mean, those white Mississippians are not going to kill other white people. Well, of course, when uh, Andrew Goodman and Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney disappeared and everybody was telling us they are dead, I thought, uh oh, you mean they will kill white people even. So just as uh, Helen said, if they could hate anybody worse than they hated black people, it was white people who had come to help black people get their rights. Uh, but anyway, um, Laurel, you know, in that town, we went to great efforts to uh, turn what had been a dance hall and was, uh, you know, boarded up but with the community's help, we were able to uh, basically rebuild the place. And that became the Freedom School headquarters, the uh, office, uh, and the Klan burned it to the ground. 
Uh, we had about 3,000 book uh, library in there. And, you know, the community had rebuilt this old place. And we watched it burn along with the fire department watching it burn that did nothing to try to put it out. But we had amazing women uh, that I want to lift up who made that project possible and worked so closely with me after I became project director to carry out what we had planned to do. And that was a Mrs. Eberta Spinks with whom I lived for over uh, 18 months in her home with her family. Uh, the woman across the street from her, her neighbor, Carrie Clayton, where we had to set up an office after we didn't have one uh, and uh, Mrs. Susie Ruffin. Uh, Mrs. Ruffin was very involved in organizing the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and was one of the delegates that went to Atlantic City for the challenge. So I learned to be an organizer. I learned to be a leader in the most difficult, under the most difficult circumstances uh, of my life. And as Mary King said, uh, it was the most important period of my life to become a field secretary and a project director in Laurel, Mississippi. Right. Wow. Amazing history here. Uh, Martha Prescott Noonan, now you had an opportunity to work uh, directly with the late uh, Bob Moses. And you were also in a, a kind of a dangerous, well, all of you were in very dangerous uh, situations. But I remember hearing a story. Tell us about what you were doing with Bob Moses and the uh, voter registration. But at some time, at one point, were you all in a church surrounded by racists? Can you tell, share that story with us, Martha? Okay, well, uh, that story actually happened in uh, Albany, Georgia. Um, so uh, let me, uh, I'll do two quick stories. Um, okay. When I was in uh, Mississippi, um, I think like Sahara, I was basically scared all the time. Um, but a lot of the work was just kind of boring, you know, day-to-day -day canvas, canvas, canvas. Um, but uh, we did a lot of mimeographing and handing out leaflets. And so that was the only time we went downtown. And I went downtown one day to get paper for leaflets um, with some of the other uh, SNCC people. And a gentleman, uh, a person was walking down the street and people were coming out to greet him and shake his hand. And I said to someone, is that the mayor or, you know, some big businessman. And this was in the summer of 1963. And they explained to me that was Brian D. LeBeckwith who had killed Medgar Evers. Oh my God. A few months before. And of course he was a hero in Greenwood <sighs> where, where he lived. The, <laughs> the uh, uh, Charles Sherrod, when I was in Albany, Georgia, that was that same summer, earlier that same summer. They were arresting um, all the um, civil rights workers. And so he had us take sanctuary in a church. And, you know, uh, two gentlemen, uh, Gaines and uh, Mr. Christian, 
sat outside the church under the light with a rifle across their laps um, to protect us. Uh, my mother heard about this uh, through her sorority. My mother, who had disowned me for going south, but nevertheless, she tried to work to see that I was safe. And she contacted an old friend of hers who was a Democratic uh, Party um, uh, national committeeman. And he put her in touch with Burke Marshall. Somehow, Burke Marshall eventually put her in touch with Robert Kennedy. And the, she never told me any of this. This is like a family story, was that when she got to Robert Kennedy, uh, he assured her, he said, I'm going to look into this and I'm going to assure you, Miss Prescott, nothing's going to happen to your daughter. And she said to Robert Kennedy, well, I hope so, young man, because I would hate to have to talk to your brother about this. <laughs> Her brother, of course, his brother being the, being the president. That's quite a story, Martha. What we're going to do now, we're just going to pause for a moment. And here's some of the music from that period. You mentioned uh, Albany. And of course, it was the Albany movement, Albany, Georgia. And I want to just hear a little piece of Bernice Johnson Reagan singing during that period from back then, Will the Be Unbroken? I was And um, that, of course, um, the great uh, Bernice Johnson Reagan, who went on to found <clears throat> Sweet Honey in the Rock. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And Zahara, yes, to us it was breaking up, but it was fine over the air. Um, okay. From what I understand, not to worry. Uh, we wouldn't want to do that to Bernice. No, and, we um, <laughs> This is a Women's History Month special. We're focusing on women in student nonviolent coordinating committee and also uh, the Friends of SNCC. And our guests are um, Zahara Simmons, Martha Prescott Noonan, and Helen Jacobson. Uh, so just looking at the clock here, there, there's so much that I, I wanted to ask you all about. But Helen, going back to you for a moment, after a while you left South, and you went back north. What were you doing in the north? Were you doing organizing there? What kind of organizing were you doing in the north? Helen. At the end of my sophomore year, I wanted to go south and work for SNCC, but I was convinced, I think by Martha and others, that I would be more useful in the north and to join the northern student movement, which was in northern cities, setting up both summer tutorials for students and doing a lot of organizing and protesting. I ended up in Hartford and uh, we had a huge 
tutorial program where college students tutored students in uh, Hartford for the, during the summer. And uh, it involved a tremendous amount of coordination. But at the same time, we were protesting everything from slumlords to uh, we picketed Carvels. I remember because although it was in the black community, they refused to hire black people. And I was arrested there, but that didn't last long. I was quickly um, released from that, that experience. Um, and the Northern Student Movement went on to you know, continue to do um, a lot of work in, in cities and in the, in the major northern cities. Right now, um, there is one story I, I hope you can quickly share um, with us, Helen, because when you were in jail in the South, mm -hmm. at some point, your father yeah. called. Just quickly tell us that story, because that's quite something, how the guards were trying to use your father's call to, yeah. you know, intimidate um, all of you who were arrested. Well, at that point, my parents were living in Geneva, Switzerland, and my father was continuing his work in immigration. And I had only told my aunt where I was because I didn't want my parents to know I was in jail in Montgomery. But they one one of the days there, a guard came and got me and took me to a room with a telephone in it. And he told me to sit down and pick up the phone. And I did. And my father started screaming, I sent you to college, not to jail. And in the background came this voice, y'all listen to your pappy now. <laughs> this was the jailer okay yeah yes. we had to we just had to put that that story in now um let us go to uh you zahara back to you zahara because uh, you know there, there's so many stories we, we just don't have the time to fit them all in maybe we need to do a series here um zahara so just tell us um share another story that jumps out at you that you were involved in with SNCC, Sahara? Um, well, there's so many. Uh, one thing <laughs> that comes to mind is that Jim Foreman had been targeted uh, there in Mississippi and was told that if he ever came into the state, he was going to be assassinated. Well, Jim was you know, bound, damn determined that he was going to go in to the state. And a number of us had been invited up to Jackson. And there was a lot of fear that we might have people on the inside of the organization who would alert the Klan and, you know, the sheriff and all of them that Jim was flying into Jackson. And so they had picked three different um, uh, cars and drivers uh, to say that we each were going to take uh, Jim from the airport to the COFO headquarters. And I was selected to be one of the cars. And up until almost the last minute, we didn't know which of the three was going to actually pick him up. And so when I was told that it was actually going to be me and there were two uh, of, uh, workers with me in the car 
And to this day, I give thanks that I asked one of the guys to drive as opposed to myself. And we picked Jim up and actually put a, a scarf on him like he was a woman, put him in the back seat. And I was in the back seat with him and the two guys were in the front. And clearly there was somebody close in who was uh, snitching because as soon as we hit the highway, here comes a big truck behind us, gun rack, Confederate flags flying. And they basically bumped us and the car went down the embankment. And if I had been driving, we would have all been dead because I was a new driver. But Ben Hartfield, the late Ben Hartfield from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, he was a driver. And let me tell you, he wrestled that car uh, so that we didn't turn over those guys in the truck. The Confederates uh, thought that we were certainly dead because they saw the car turn over. But he, we weren't dead, obviously. We were able to survive that. That might have been one of the most scariest moments of my life. And there wow. was a Nick car following that was able to pick us up and we had to get the car towed, et cetera. But uh, this was the kind of danger that people were in, that sure. we were in Mississippi. Unbelievable story. Yeah, one I had not yet heard. I'm looking yeah, at the I'm clock. Martha Prescott Noonan, I think you likely will have the last word here. But uh, one of the things that you must um, tell our audience about is the book, Hands on the Freedom Plow. Okay. Um, and who was involved in, in that book? Because there's so many stories of SNCC women that we can't possibly uh, get to here. So Martha, tell us about the book and anything else you would like to say before we wrap up. Martha. Well, the book has uh, the firsthand accounts of 42 women who were associated with SNCC uh, during the 60s in the Deep South. So, and it covers... Uh, everything from sort of the beginning of SNCC, uh, even into the mid-70s. Uh, and it focuses on the Alabama projects, the Albany projects, the Mississippi project, and uh, Gloria Richardson in uh, Cambridge, Maryland. So it's, right. an exciting, it's a, and it's an exciting book. And I think um, one of the underlying themes is that the women were empowered um, really I think by the fact that they that we knew that we were acting in a way to alter history that we were moving to change the the, the larger economic political social uh, the, the dynamics that were determining the lives of southern Black people. And we could see that we could make that change. 
Wow. Well, this was just an amazing. I have, Moth, I've learned so much sitting at your feet and Sahara listening to you and listening to you, uh, Helen. We really want to lift up and honor all of the women in SNCC. In fact, the, all of, of SNCC consider the shock troops of the civil rights movement. I mean, it's hard for us to just imagine the level of danger uh, that you all faced. So, I think we likely are going to have to do this again because there's a lot that we just absolutely did not uh, get to. Um, but I want to thank each and every one of you for your work and for taking the time to join us today, Martha and Zahara and Helen. Thank you so very much. Thank you. <laughs> All righty. Uh, we are out of time. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, our board op, Gary Baca. And uh, we are going to go out with hearing um, more from um, Will the Circle Be Unbroken by um, also a member of SNCC, Bernice Johnson Reagan. Um, if you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1 800 7350 Go online to Pacifica Radio Archives.org. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. Thank you for listening. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend. Y'all stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. I was standing.